And so what are we asking him to do? Well, if he's a 2-0 thrower, we want him to be a 1-9 because, you know, he's got to get a college scholarship. He's got to go to the ACC. He's got to go to the ACC. Okay, perfect. Well, how do we do that? Yeah. Well, like, just uh, keep throwing. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. no, that doesn't work. <laughs> sure. Like, we, we can't be static with it. Like, I think that you can get better. You can get better at field a thousand ground balls and you can get better. Yeah. But what if you're empowered with information? And so I think my goal is to empower our athletes like empower them with information and then they can apply it so that it works for them and then when you're in the weight room and you see them utilizing strength and conditioning to empower them to be better on the field i think that's when it really becomes like full circle it's like the athlete is getting that holistic approach that i feel was vacant in a lot of my development you're dialed in to the abca's calls from the clubhouse podcast Connecting our coaches with some of the best baseball minds in our game. Now here's your host, Jeremy Sheetinger. Broadcasting from the ABCA National Office here in Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome back or welcome to our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast. This is your baseball coaching source for certified audio gold and the place you come to connect with the very best baseball minds in our game. This is a podcast for the lifelong learners. It's a community of individuals that want more for their career. They want more for their players. They live in that mode of constantly searching for the better way, never satisfied, never feel like they've arrived in coaching, and they love to take advantage of the opportunity of hearing from someone inside of our brotherhood that's finding success on the field. If that describes you, Welcome to the show, and we appreciate each of you dialing in. Subscribe, review, and share, always with the reminders on your phone, your computer, your tablet. Hit subscribe to this podcast. You'll never miss another show. Leave us a review on there. We'd love to see five-star ratings. That helps more people find this show and share this show. Keep spreading the word. Helps us reach more baseball folks with this podcast. Also, connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. You can also find us somewhere on GarageBand and Keynote. Find us at ABCA1945. You can also head over to our website, abca.org, if you're looking for more information about what our baseball coaching fraternity here is all about. Also, please feel free to reach out to me directly on Twitter at CoachSheets3 or by email Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-S, at abca.org. Guys, still reeling from last week's 100th episode, the outpouring of love and support that came through tweets or emails and text and All of it was much appreciated, and it continues to fuel the fire here to keep this train rolling downhill. It's 100 episodes in, and we've never felt more motivated to keep improving, keep challenging our own mission of the podcast, and keep getting better for our coaches, you, the loyal listeners. There's over 10,000 of you that check into this show each week, and now here's to reaching just one more coach, one more player, one more parent this week on our way to 100,000. I'm going to keep moving this thing forward, and thanks again for your help with that, guys. Proud to send a shout-out to our great friends over at AstroTurf, the leaders in the clubhouse for the turf industry, and we hope that you're already following these guys on social media. And If you want to, find them at AstroTurfUSA on Twitter, and the images that are coming through some of their new projects are just unreal. Gorgeous new facilities that have taken the turf solution to their playing field. And if you've got interest in seeing what this might look like for your ballpark, head over to their website, astroturf.com. That's astroturf.com. 
play around with their field configurator. Add your own logos in there, make your own AstroTurf field of dreams, and find out why AstroTurf has been ahead of the curve for over 50 years. Now into this week's show, and it connects us with past podcast guest Greg Brown, the head coach at Nova Southeastern University in Florida, and the return trip opens up a great dialogue on developing the catcher position and how Brownie has challenged himself to find new ways to bring athleticism to the forefront for his guys. So we open up this as a precursor to his main stage talk when he takes the stage in Dallas, Texas for a 75th annual convention. And we take a much deeper dive into his path as a catching coach, the mentors he's had the privilege of working under, the lessons learned along the way, and the young men that have left his program from behind the dish and how they moved in professional baseball. We find out about their path, their journey. What was that like? And we even spend time talking through a dynamic that some of us may be sitting in right now listening in. We weren't a catcher growing up, but guess what? Now we're a catching coach. How would Brownie approach that situation and, again, still develop those guys? It's tremendous perspective throughout this show on the airwaves, a definite Take Feverish Notes episode, and Greg can't help but fall into plenty of moments for us that offer up some certified audio gold. We're swimming with the sharks this week, but these sharks are wearing shins, chest protectors, and scullies here on the podcast yeah, no hockey mask allowed. We're going to welcome in Greg Brown, the head coach at Nova Southeastern University and a main stage clinician at our upcoming ABCA convention in Dallas. Brownie joins our show and this week's calls from the Clubhouse podcast. Get ready, coaches. This great show is coming at you right now. Coaches, thanks for dialing into our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast. We are broadcasting down in the great state of Florida with our 2016 Division II National Championship head coach, Greg Brown from Nova Southeastern. Brownie, thanks for jumping on the call with us, my man. Jeez, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're excited to have you. Now, full transparency here, our listeners have hopefully figured this out. You know, We do not record episodes and can them for a couple months and break them out when necessary. Uh, we like to keep them as current as we can. Now, this one... Brownie, we've entered new territory. This is as current an episode. It is now 10-10 on Monday night, and we're going to release this tomorrow. And you and I are having a great conversation here at night. Family's in bed, and I appreciate you jumping on the call with us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, <laughs> I'm really excited to do it. It's awesome. Let's dive into a great conversation that's going to lead us to breaking down what you guys are doing behind the plate, and obviously leading into your main stage presentation. But where we always start our shows, we talk about the ABCA experience, you being part of this fraternity, and it meaning so much to you throughout your career. There's a lot of fronts here, man. Getting up on that main stage this January, that's got to be something just really special to you. Talk about four days of baseball heaven, what that means to you as a coach. How has that experience really helped you grow inside your role? And then again, man, looking forward to Dallas. What do you got for us? You know, I think that the ABCA and how it's grown, watching it grow, has been simultaneous with my growth within it. So mm. when I first got started um, with the ABCA. It was my first year as a head baseball coach. And I would tell you that I probably uh, did not take advantage of the opportunity to be there and getting to really just meet some great minds and, and have the different conversations that take place. Uh, not only that, but I also probably didn't take advantage enough of hearing uh, the speakers on the main stage. Mm -hmm. And I think as I started to mature out of the phase of, hey, I know everything, uh, into really I know nothing and I <laughs> need to probably uh, start buckling down and studying, sure. is that I 
I really started to dive into the, the speakers and try to get stronger in the areas that I had less knowledge in. And obviously, you know, as a catching, hitting guy, I'm, I'm going to be drawn to those first and foremost. But going and sitting through, uh, listen to Cressy talk or going in and hearing, uh, you know, a pitching presentation uh, from Yeski, I think those are the things that have made me stronger as realizing, hey, these are not necessarily deficiencies. These are just gaps in my learning that I haven't had to really dive into before. And now I want to really focus on trying to uh, expand my knowledge base. That's outstanding. Fill those gaps. Um, you know, the last time we had you on the air, Brownie, was May of 2017. Had episode 32, a great conversation. We were just laughing before we got started here. A conversation that had, at that point, Six national championships. A couple weeks later, Doug Wren wins his fourth. Uh, Doug Wren from Tyler Junior College in Texas. Jeremiah Robbins from Lewis Clark State in Idaho. And obviously you guys coming off a national championship the year before. Now that's been two postseasons ago. And there's been a lot of time between episodes. So your episode 101, that was episode 32. Uh, this is a really neat question. I'm really excited to hear you open this up. From that moment, if you can go back to who Brownie was at that point, What's changed for you since then? How have you grown and how are maybe you're seeing things about the game and how you coach? How are you seeing things differently? Well, I was a little man on the totem pole in that conversation, <laughs> just to be honest with you. Uh, so those guys have multiple, sure. you know, I'm just sitting there coming single off digits, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I've had a great, I've had a great run as a head coach and I feel very fortunate to have worked with the amount of people that I have and that I've had a high turnover for, with assistant coaches mm-hmm. and um, it's been a great thing. They go and they get jobs. And what has happened recently, you know, during that time was um, I, I had the opportunity to hire Brian Peters, uh, who was formerly at university of Pittsburgh, uh, who's a really loyal ABCA That's a- uh, coach. And mm-hmm. he is, he was a unbelievable help to me in creating more systemic approaches to coaching. I think I'm a very much a feel guy and I go by things um, by what I feel the hitter needs or the catcher needs at that time or the team needs. And he came from a systemic approach. And I think that between the two of us and the relationship that we created in the year and a half that we worked together, uh, which, which was over the course of the 17 and 18 season, Mm -hmm was that we developed a, um, a, a bond that challenged each other to grow in different areas. And he really challenged me to become more systemic. And I think once I started to, to apply those type of approach, it became apparent that our players' growth was, was ascending at, at, a, at a higher rate. And, and so I'm really thankful for that relationship that I have with him. And uh, unfortunately he got hired away. He's at St. Mary's college now yep. in California and, uh, uh, Eric, uh, Valenzuela hired him and I'm, I'm really proud, uh, of the work that Brian and I did together, but it, it was something where he still today, like as we, he's running an offense now, uh, bringing, bringing our high powered, you know, I'd love to throw it back and call it gorilla ball, but it's like a dynamic <laughs> offense approach that we do. And I think he's now bringing that to the West Coast. And I think that his presence uh, in my life changed uh, a lot of who I am as a coach. His impact oh, wow. on human beings and his approach was was so aligned with me. And he helped bring out the best in me, I think. And so I think that for 
future, like, you know, of, of my seasons of, uh, as being a head coach, I think that, um, he has helped me realize where my strengths lie. Mm-hmm. He has helped me realize how I can improve. And if I think if I continue on that trend that I can continue to grow our program and really grow the people around me. And that's what I'm focused on. I, I think that, um, making an impact is our greatest, uh, challenge. And yet it is so simple to, to really focus on. And I think that winning is a byproduct of it. And we tend to get that clouded at times where, where winning, the winning and the feel good drives, um, just immediate gratification. Like it's driven by immediate gratification. It's driven to be uh, a narrow focus where we, we can, we can create a, a larger scape of, of, growth around everybody around us, man, the winning is, is so, it's so process oriented that we talk about that, right? Because the process, Nick Saban and all the things that influences, I recently saw something on Brad Stevens, uh, from the Celtics about when he was at Butler and it, it was a conversation he was having and they were reviewing a film where they hit a game winning floater. Um, and it was somebody they had subbed in. He steals a pass, goes down court, hits a floater, and uh, they, it, you know, it's like a walk-off victory, right? Sure. You know, and yeah. and while when the shot went up, Brad Stevens had his arms folded, and he started to walk towards the other bench, and um, he he never reacted to the play. And they asked him afterwards in in this in this uh, one-on-one, and they asked him about his reaction there, and he said, you know, whether that shot went in or or didn't had no effect on how we played the game. Hmm. And, and you really think, well, we, we are process-oriented. Winning, winning and losing is sometimes so uh, it's so um, random that, that you know, like, yeah. like if you really focus on how we play the game. And I just thought that he was the best example that I had seen in that. That's something I'd like to continue to get better at. I'm, I'm very, um, I'm definitely, I've been ruled by my emotions in the past, and it's something that I want to continue to be more rational you know, along those same lines, I had a coach out on Barnstormers this past week and Eric Borba at Orange Lutheran out in Cali, and he was breaking down something that you see a lot of coaches do now. And I think it goes along the same lines of your conversation of, of really coaching with our gut or that feel. And so let's say late in that game, you, you do hit the walk-off. Well, it's easy to go down the left field line and be fired up and you're ecstatic and you're going through it and you completely forget about that you just led the country in strikeouts. You had no approach with two strikes, you know, X, Y, and Z, and you forget all those things because the last moment was so awesome. Or vice versa, you're playing great. You're really, you know, playing great team baseball, and it just fell short, and you lose 2-1, and you want to go down the left field line and chew your team out. And I think coaches are starting to figure out, that, and this is what Eric brought up, and I love this idea, and I wish I had done this as a coach, was just be more mindful and have that, that mindfulness to say, you know what, no matter what, I need time to digest. I need to understand what the game was before I address my team because if you do it with passion, that can take you one or two ways. Do you see it that way? I totally do. And I think that one of the things that I've had to implement um, for that for that uh, cool-down period mm-hmm. is is I'll have the guys do field work before we address them after a game, there win or go. lose. And sometimes if it's a raw emotion – I think it's good if, if you have a level head, I think it's good to get them together and try to be the calming voice mm-hmm. on it. Um, but 
it's it's just, it's kind of more of like, hey, this is what we do. We win baseball games, you know, and <laughs> then we clean the field and then we talk, you know. And so sure. it's it's been a, it's been a good method for me because I can tell I can vividly remember um, in my early years a game where we we won the game and I did not like the way we played at all. Yeah. And um, I I undressed the team and I lost them. I lost them for like a three week period yep. where. We couldn't get it back, and it just felt like we were in this downward spiral. And um, again, I talk about assistant coaches. I had I had a wise old sage, a guy named Eric Cruz, uh, who uh, my son's named after him. And and uh, Cruz is a he's a wisdom guy. He's a patient man. He's smart. He he's now a scout for the Arizona Diamondbacks, and uh, just really proud of his, his just the time that we had together. And he is absolutely directly re- correlated to our winning and uh but i just remember him looking at me and going hey you were wrong and he was so right in that and i think that as a head coach um it's very difficult for your assistants sometimes to tell you the truth yep. and i think it's also difficult for us sometimes to listen to the truth <laughs> and i think that i'm very fortunate again to have the right kind of assistants around me that help conversations um to be better for the group and and that's the thing if you build trust i I believe it's a process of not working for someone it's a working with and there were probably times in those early years where eric cruz didn't like working for me but i know i know that uh he made me a better leader and i began you know, we began to work together and, and, and that's been, it's been a special, I've had a special ride. And the only constant that I've had uh, as of late is my pitching coach. And he is the mad scientist behind the scenes and he's, he's even keel. So, you know, like, like, yeah, yeah, no, he's very important. You know, Justin Ramsey's excellent. And, and, uh, you know, again, I've been very fortunate and had a lot of guys hired. Uh, but I do believe it's because, um, as they make you stronger, you like, like with their talent, mm-hmm. you're also giving off your positive energy and your positive, uh, you know, like your strengths to them it's a, and it prepares them for their next opportunity. So good. You know, I love what you guys do at Nova and I, and I know you well enough to know that you're very aggressive. You, you think outside the box, your, your mind is progressive. You're always trying to find the better way. And I know you've, you've adapted to technology. Just made something, uh, made it part of your program in terms of how you guys strengthen it to enhance your coaching. Um, it shows up in practice. It shows up in games. Can you detail that out, how you've really adjusted to that coming from the scouting world to now living the last eight or nine years inside of college baseball? How have you adjusted? Well, I think that um, it's not going away. And I think being no, aware not. that it's not going away is something very important for us. And, you know, I think of myself, I'm, I'm a baseball person, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a baseball man. And I think that um, we have to adapt I also think that there's a lot of things that other people can't learn through your own experiences. And so, you know, if you're an, you're an old time scout who has, has drafted players and developed player, you know, seen them develop and you've seen what mm-hmm. that looks like, you have something that is still valuable to a major league baseball organization. And, and so you'd be a fool though, not to try and learn the data side, right? Well, as a coach, I think that we're never going to face a uh, generation again 
that hasn't been exposed to data or hasn't yeah. been exposed to uh, arm care throwing programs that involve weighted balls. So yeah. if we're anti all of that, well, I think that we're being closed minded. So our job, as I see it, is to be better, like better prepared so that we can interpret these things and then apply them and disseminate them to the players that you see fit that is going to help them because they're going to have questions you know, just because they've experienced it. Like if they went, you know, and, and worked out at the Texas baseball ranch with Ron Wolford and it doesn't mean that they are the guru and they know all of the information and apply it. Right. So it would be our job as a pitching coach or as a, as a, any type, you know, a positional coach Mm -hmm. to probably learn some arm care and strengthening programming that is out there and that people are going to so that you can prevent injury and you can promote the growth and put them in position to succeed. And so I looked at data as something that um, in 2015, it became, it came like basically prevalent within the major leagues. And I think that in the years that have followed, colleges have followed suit and obviously resources matter and how you apply it. But I think that at any level you can apply data. So for instance, what we did um, this year, just, just recently in our, and our um, pre-fall individuals was we did assessments and we took the time to assess them in a multitude of, of uh, fashions, like to see, you know, not only in their um, strength and conditioning, you know, like using, I think FMS test is good for the general population. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's necessarily like parts of it are good for baseball, but I don't think that all of it is. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so we took that testing and then we applied things that we value and we started we started tracking them in their strength and conditioning program from a baseline and then on the field we did the same thing and 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 a lot of it's subjective i'm not really concerned about how hard they throw the ball across the diamond but what i am concerned is where they are at mechanically in their in their you know in their baseball functional movement and so what we do is we film them and create the baseline so um, now we have information and data and obviously hitting, there's more data that is, uh, prevalent, like whether you're using blast or for us, we're fortunate to have a relationship, uh, with, uh, baseball cloud and use flight scope. And we have the opportunity to cl- collect data on our inner squads, our pitching. We get all, we, we are able to do all that and, and we are fortunate. Uh, but other, you know, when you're at an SEC school or ACC school, you're probably using TrackMan, and then you're using Synergy, and then you're using all these different things. So your scouting reports look entirely different than my scouting reports do when, when we're trying to play sure. some of the best Division II teams in the country. And we're using, you know, we're using a fossilized system, you know, video, and and we're using, uh, you know, and usually. Yeah, stats, yeah. and then we're and we're usually using a stream that's off center and you know kind of out of focus, you know. So like it's <laughs> sure. kind of hard. To, it's kind of hard to read the break. But yeah. but what I what I see the value in is that when you have guys that are developing within your system, that long term you're going to be able to say, hey, this is what it looked like when it came in, and this is what it is when it's exiting, and that player is now prepared to be a professional baseball player, or that yeah. player is now excelling. Uh, at this, which is what makes him more valuable for your team when it comes to dynamic winning. And that those are the focuses that I have used the technology for. I think the assessments are going to be a huge part of our growth as a program um, because because it's something that you're you're constantly um, 
your mind's eye can play tricks on you. You're fighting the perception versus reality. We think a player's doing such, and then you go back and review it, and now the data or the video is going to emphasize something that was actually happening. And see, I, I, so I think that I think that we have to be careful with the data because we don't want to go all in and lose the sight, just like the scout of you know losing his gut, right? We don't want to mm-hmm. we don't want to go on, but we have to learn it so that we can better apply it because I don't think there's a hitter in the country right now that hasn't heard about the swing revolution or, or swinging up. But what we have to be mindful is who, who are they listening to? And if they're listening to the wrong person or, or, you know, quote unquote, the wrong person or the wrong style that doesn't apply to your program, you're going to have a challenge at hand. So you need to be well-versed in what you're doing because they ask the question why constantly and if, if I can produce a think tank type culture within our program where players are challenging coaches to get better at what it is we're trying to do on the field, I think we're all improving. And so what I have seen is as we've become more innovative, as we've become more um, uh, data driven, if you will, what, what I have seen is our players have followed suit and grown and challenged us and made us grow. And that that's what I'm excited about. Oh, that's so good. Get chills in moments like that. I appreciate it. One thing you just dropped was, was a line that came out of episode 88. when we did extra innings with Andy Lopez, ABCA hall of famer, two time national champion. And it, it's so eloquently put when you think about uh, his era and the era that he grew up in and Brian, the era that we played in, when my high school coach told me to do something, there was no questioning. You just went and ran polls. You just went and took more ground balls. You, just tried to make the adjustment and there was no questioning. And now when a player, you know, comes to you or you go to them and you say, man, Hey, we need to think about this. It's a why question it, because that they have access to so much information and they've been, um, entitled is the wrong word, but they just, they've been armed with an opinion now because they do have access to things that we didn't have. We didn't have the internet as prevalent. We didn't have social media to the extent. And so that they have, they have access to now. And I think those dynamics, certainly play a large role in this whole thing. Yeah. And I think that, I think that they're exposed to a lot more information like you're saying. And in so many ways we emulate what we see. Mm -hmm. And so as when I was a young catcher, I emulated what I would see And the Yankees were on TV all the time. And so I'd watch Jorge Posada Mm -hmm. and I think, okay, wow, that seems like a, a great style. Let me quarter turn the way he does, the way he pockets. (laughs) Well, I look back at Jorge Posada and I don't teach catching anywhere any way in the in the sense of the way his body moved and but i was emulating what i the information that i had access to now at any single moment you can go on twitter or instagram and you could find swing after swing after swing so so the kids are emulating what they're seeing and it's in a lot of ways it was the swings that we saw from the past it's just now they're seeing them more you know, I, mm. I wish I was a kid with a Twitter account that could see Ted Williams over and over again. Yep. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, yep. that would have been probably advantageous to uh, my hitting because my hitting could have used some emulation <laughs> of, of big leaders. So. Well, I tried to emulate Jose Canseco with all mama pop-ups. They never, they didn't, they didn't go 500 feet. Um, yeah. Let's open up a catching discussion. This is the main focus I want to get to. You're widely known as one of the best catching guys in the country. Obviously, one of the best small college coaches, in my opinion, in the country. And so when we talk about catching, 
it's easy to lay this groundwork because, man, I'm looking back at episode 77 with Tim Cousins. This is one of your mentors. And I know you're excited to hear that episode come out. Uh, great feedback on all fronts. And now you get a chance to talk through this dynamic and this fundamental in our game, one that a lot of coaches want more information about. There's just not as many uh, real catching gurus out there, guys that feel really confident teaching what's going on back there. And then there's so many, as we'll get to later in the show, that get put into that position. So they played infield, they played outfield, they're a pitching coach, and they're now they're in charge of the catchers as well. So we're going to open that whole discussion up. But I want you to lay that groundwork for the background that you have behind the plate. Who are the mentors that you worked with? And more specifically, what were your takeaways from each of those folks that you worked with? Well, I th- the first one for me was Ray Romero, who was in when I was in high school, he was our assistant coach. And he just worked with me tirelessly. And I, there was a moment that I'll never forget, which he, he put in a year. So after my freshman year, I go play summer ball and I come back. And the first time that we worked, uh, he rolled me out a bun and I threw it away. And he looked at me and he said, you haven't been working. And I go, yes, I have. And I come back behind the dish. He rolls out the bunt again. I throw it away again. And he goes, man, for a year, I spent drilling you, doing this. And you went and just played. You didn't train anymore. And I never forgot that moment and how low I felt because because the reality was was he was right he was invested in my development and I wasn't investing back into it you know so uh, Ray was a huge um, asset to me when I was in college I played for Rudy Garbalosa and Greg Kilby and Greg Kilby uh, who's uh, East Coast cross checker for or Southeast cross checker for Kansas City Royals and um, and and then Rudy Garbalosa who's national championship coach at Lynn University. But, you know, we didn't have really formal catching training, um, I would say. And so, again, I go back into emulating. I think I watched TV. I became a drop-knee catcher, which I would work underneath the ball. And for me, it really um, was a style that I think I was pretty good at. Mm -hmm. But the moment I got the pro ball, first game I ever played in front of our farm director, a guy named Mark Del Piano, uh, who still remains one of my mentors. Mark Del Piano goes, Brownie. absolutely great game you can't catch that way and so so, well in that moment led to me um going to the gulf coast league i got trucked by Mm. i got trucked at the plate and uh basically uh they thought i was left for dead but i mean you know like they thought (laughs) then they thought i had a broken jaw and uh the 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 baseball player for the pirates who had run into me was a first baseman he was about 240 pounds, and I think they said he was from Purdue, but I can't really remember right because I probably was concussed. <laughs> sure. But he uh, he hit me so hard uh, that it, the the call came through, and his name was Brown, and it was Brown runs into Brown and Brown's down, and my poor mom was listening to the game, and uh, she uh, she I had to I had to make sure that we got a phone call to her and let her know sure. that I was all right. But um, I got sent down to the Gulf Coast League after that uh, from Jamestown, New York in the Penn league. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I got to play, uh, for Tim cousins was my manager as well as our catching coordinator within the Marlins. And we went right to work and he and I hit it off. And I can honestly say that he is the greatest mentor I've ever had, uh, from a catching perspective. Uh, he treated me, uh, with such respect and, and as a human being, I learned so much from cousin. He was there for me in uh, some really hard times, too, because while I was playing, I lost my father. But um, it it just uh, the constant for me within the Marlins organization was always Tim Cousins. And um, we uh, he he referred to me affectionately as the guinea pig uh, (laughs) in his speech at the ABCA last year. And 
I was I was one of the guinea pigs that uh, we all were in this like really again like baseball think tank, yeah. um, and to do it at that professional level and you know I never got to I never got to catch in the big leagues and um, you know but I got known within our organization as someone who uh, was going to make pitchers better and I th- and I took a lot of pride in that um, you know guys like Josh Johnson Scott Olson um, there I, I was Dontrell Willis's personal catcher in the off season. I got him ready for the WBC and I'd get him ready for the off seasons and, uh, for the spring trainings. And, um, those were experiences that, that because of my development with cuz I was able to grow. And, you know, if you looked at my batting average or my back of my baseball card, you, you would have released me every single year. And sometimes I asked Delp why he didn't release me, you know, but, uh, but you know, it, it came down to, being a, a pitcher's catcher it, you know, and yeah. a catcher's catcher. And so Cuz taught me so much, and um, I really took to his coaching, and, and I think it was the biggest influencer in the coaching style that I started with when I got into my coaching career. Mm. It's a great episode, guys. Episode 77, I recommend it for anyone. And, and, and Cuz really goes into the details inside what the Cubs are doing behind the play, their individual development plans, all the ideas, drills they do in spring training. is a really great episode. Um, and we're going to go a different direction. We're going to really get into inside the details of, of some different things. A lot of that's going to lead to what you're going to talk about in Dallas. But I know, you know, when you think about Nova and, and if you pay attention and you watch how, you know, certain guys are coming out of small college programs, you guys have done a fantastic job moving some people on. And even a few guys behind the plate, you know, in 13, you had a free agent sign with the Astros, Brett Clements, four-year starter for you, national champions, Michael Hernandez. I got to watch that cat play and watch you guys dogpile. He signed a free agent deal with the Marlins. And uh, Jake Anchia, a seventh rounder behind the plate at a Division II school, which you just don't hear very often. He gets a brand new gold glove on his uh, mantelpiece uh, from the ABCA in Rawlings. Uh, so you guys have done a great job moving those guys out of your program and into professional baseball. And so specifically with those cats, what they did for your program, who they were for your pitching staff and your program, what were maybe the qualities that separated those three individuals, how they impact your team, how they impact and leave a lasting legacy in your program? Well, Brett Clements uh, was a uh, Charlie Hustle type. He he was he's just that catcher that he'd put his body in front of any ball, and he wasn't the most talented guy, but he sure got he sure got a lot out of himself. Mm. And um, I'm really proud of him and his career because even though it didn't amount to you know like higher levels, he ended up winning um, awards within the Astros organization mm. for just the human being that he was, the teammate. And I think that says a lot about him because, you know, he was just, he was willing to sacrifice for everybody around him. And I think the first year I coached him, I, I was so, I remember being so hard on him, uh, trying to make him better, you know. And what I realized in year two, which was 2013, was that um, he's a special kid. He was a special human being, like, just like as, as good of a person as you'd want to coach. And I, I, I remember having like a conscious effort of like, I'm going to enjoy him a lot more this year. Yeah. Like I want to, I want to, I want to really like have that relationship with them. And so that's what developed there. And then in 2014, I was fortunate enough to, we had recruited, uh, Michael Hernandez to come in and, you know, to get a four year starter for behind the plate. Oh, that's such a, man. that's such a benefit. And we had a good catching core even behind, uh, you know, there, there were there were other catchers that didn't move on to pro ball that we because we tend to have a two catcher system, mm-hmm. but Michael was was the catalyst to a lot of winning and he was four for four in high school in four high school championships at, at Archbishop McCarthy and wow. then he, and then 
he came here and in year one, um, we had four freshmen starting for us. They started out 24 and seven and they kind of hit that wall. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we went five and 10 to end it and we were out of the playoffs. Right. And so the following year though, we won our first conference title in program history. And then, and then his junior year, we won the national title. And unfortunately during the world series, there was a catcher's interference and it broke his, uh, on his glove hand, it broke his finger. And Michael was ranked as one of the top 15 catchers in college baseball. He had played in the Cape. Um, and unfortunately no team would draft him because he, he wasn't going to be ready for another three to four months. And so he was coming back to school. And I say, unfortunately, because it, it, it created a log jam. And so on that same team, on the 2016 team, we had Jake Cancio was a freshman and Jake, his catching um, was very raw. He was a very crude uh, athlete back there, uh, but he had arm strength, he had great hips. Um, he had leadership qualities, mm-hmm. but there was still a lot to go. Well, when Michael went down in the World Series, Jake stepped in and caught the last two and a half games uh, to the championship, which I think is very impressive for yeah. a freshman, yeah. especially since when he won the Gold Glove uh, this past year, uh, I just the other day got to give it to him in person for the first time. He reminded me that in his first college start, we were at Alabama Huntsville, and I think I ripped him out of the game by the third inning and sent him down to the bullpen. <laughs> so he, he he made sure to remind me of that, and I told and I told him, well, don't worry uh, on the trophy replica that we'll have. I'm gonna scratch out your name and put mine. So that's yeah, that, no that was how that that's how that relationship went. But he uh, Jake uh, Jake in year two was supposed to be the full-time starter and Jake needed reps. He needed time to grow as a catcher. And with Michael returning for his senior year, which was kind of unexpected, I had to have a, I had to have a conversation with both of them of how we were going to operate. And, um, I very much believed in Michael Hernandez and, and the way our team believed in him. And mm-hmm. he had a, a difficult offensive year that year. And, in a lot of ways, it would have been easy to have just benched him at time. But I, I made a promise that he was catching on a weekend. He was catching um, two of the three games in conference. And if we had a midweek, Jake would catch the midweek. So it would be a two-to-two two split if we were playing four. If we were playing three, Michael would get the lion's share. Mm-hmm. And uh, we stuck by it the whole time. And uh, Michael ended up getting signed um, by uh, the Marlins as a free agent and went off. And what was so cool about Michael's debut was in his first game. Michael hit two home runs in his uh, GCL debut. Wow. And it was just like this beautiful <laughs> moment because it was a struggle. He had a really poor offensive year, and, you know, the numbers really were against him. But he to see him persevere that way. And so he finished the year this year in high A. Again, an exceptional kid. I think that he has a great career ahead of him because uh, he can catch and throw with the best of them. And, and he's, just a, he's just a great clubhouse guy. Uh, you know, if, if he gets the production out of his bat, I think that, you know, he, he could have a very long career. So I'm really excited about him. But what, what it ended up doing was Jake only became a full-time starter as a junior yeah. uh, after, after Michael had left after his senior year. And so we had a lot of development to do. And in Jake's development over his freshman and sophomore year, there was a lot of um, pushing and prodding from my side. And I don't think that he was necessarily understanding what I wanted out of him. And so his body control, things that we were looking for uh, from an athletic standpoint, I wasn't able to get out of him. And then his junior year, he came back from the Cape. And 
the bat was his calling card. I mean, I think he hit 47 or so home runs in his three-year career. I mean, this guy could really swing the bat. But when he came back at, in his junior, it was different. The air about him was different. He um, really understood, I thought, his body better. And when we got into into our development for catching, he just excelled. And um, I remember watching him catch in February. And uh, one of the scouts, one of a friend of mine, uh, asked me about how I thought Jake was doing. I said, you know, he's fine right now, but you need to come see him in May. You need to come see him when he gets 35, 40 games under his belt this year and who he becomes at that point in time because he's going to continue to get better. And, you know, Jake, Jake's development, was, I mean, there, there were hiccups along the way, you know, as far as um, just we, we needed to get better at blocking and, and we found different ways to train him um, because, because even though he had great hips, when he was in the blocking process, he would get high-hipped. And so what, what the derivative that we came to was instead of focusing on him getting down, we had his him focus on getting back up. So if you think about it, when you get it mm. down into the blocking position and if your hips are high, in order to get up, you can't you can't do like a Bruce Lee and just jump up, no, right? Because you your, your hips aren't engaged. You got to go down to do it. And so what we did was we started te- teaching him in training to to pop up. Like don't worry about the block, pop up. Like how quickly can you get back up? And by doing that, his hips ended up sinking more. Um, and it, it was it was a great it, it you know it seems it like in looking back I'm like wow that was such a simple fix but you know it took a lot of trial and error to get to that hey that was what that athlete needed um, because he is very athletic and he's very very strong so so applying that to him there's other athletes that maybe are a little bit weaker and they don't have the hip mobility or the hip flexibility so you got to find a different way to get that so Jake's development was was on this track and um, you know at the end of the year the Seattle Mariners ended up taking him in the seventh round and um, I thought that was actually the bottom of where he would go I thought he would go a little bit higher and he had some play in the draft but the draft's a, a living organism, man. It's a different animal. And so, um, you know, he went where he went. He was happy, and that's what matters to me. And um, unfortunately, he, his season was cut short a little bit um, this summer. But I think that um, the Mariners got a, a really talented uh, catcher, which I don't think you can say this often, but his best baseball is ahead of him. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that has to do with, you know, the position being relatively new to him still. Um, even though he trained at it, he doesn't have a lot of innings logged. I think uh, he's only going to get better. That's outstanding. Now you're obviously getting prepped for the main stage in Dallas. We're excited. Our 75th annual convention, and you're part of, in our opinion, one of the best speaker lineups that we've seen at an ABCA convention. So when you're prepping for that and you're building this empowering the athletic catcher and you're going to spend a majority of your time talking about uh, receiving and throwing movement patterns and certainly – that that's a discussion itself, how you've grown in those respects and how you've seen those things differently. We'll get to, um, and let's start to open those up a little bit. I think we'll go to them one at a time. We'll talk about receiving. How have you grown in this space? And certainly as a player, even in professional baseball, you tweak, you learn, you grow, you see things differently, but moving into the coaching realm and again, trying to find those cues, those fixes to move guys in the right ways, open up this discussion around receiving movement patterns. Well, you know, I think it all goes back to Cousins and, you know, like in my work with him and, yeah. and we, we worked on receiving a ton and the style that we used and what he taught us um, was, was 
keeping our left elbow below our wrist and and it was a a what i would call like a more traditional style of receiving um i i i found great gains with it um i i think it helped me um at sinking the elbow being able to control the left knee which we call our nemesis uh being able to control the left knee uh from getting in the way he taught us different patterns that that to me were really strong but Again, I talked about being a drop knee catcher before. Now I went to a static two knees up, and that really changed the dynamic of what I had to do receiving. And so, um, one of the things that I remember him emphasizing with me as well was how to get my shoulders in front of my knees. And so, one of the things that um, is really cool when I got to hear him speak last year and on the podcast was that his journey. So, we were together up until 2007. And since 2007, so fast forward 10 years of me here, hearing him at the convention, mm-hmm. we've been on our own different journey of discovery. And it's, and it's really neat to see the route that he has gone, as well as be aware of the route that I've gone in my development of catchers. And um, to, he and I had dinner while we were at the ABCA, and we got to collaborate on a lot of the things, you know, fill in the gaps of, of the mm-hmm. stuff that, you know, we had gone through. And... I think that's the beauty of our sport is that, you know, he is my source, but I'm on a different, I'm on a different track right now. And, um, so, so one of the things that I, I really have gained, um, a belief in is trying to create a receiver that's going to work from the ground up and be able to keep their thumb underneath the ball. And so, you know, referring to chicken wing as we did off air was, yeah. you know, that was, that was something that I've recently adopted and, and what I've done is try to create different pathways for the catcher to make different moves to the ball in order to get the outcome, which we want, which is a strike. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, um, being biomechanically strong is very important, mm-hmm. right? Because we want to control the baseball. And so working up through it is going to take, if I, if my elbow is below my wrist and I'm trying to work up through the ball, I think it's a lot more difficult than, if I get into that chicken wing, which to me is the forearm being horizontal to the ground yep. and your thumb being at Straight six down. o'clock. Yep. Yep. And, and so now what we, what we do is we create, we create movement patterns that are working up using our pocket, which the biggest emphasis Tim Cousins ever had with us was teaching the pocket, which he later developed in the equalizer, which with all-star, which is a great training glove. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm a big believer in the training gloves mm-hmm. because I want different variables and different, um, I want different environmental cues <laughs> for them to still do the same thing. You're, you're, and cut, so, you're cut from the Tanner Swanson school of catching. Well, you know, I, I think that Tanner had a big effect on me just watching his presentation yeah. because he was so creative and he thinking outside the box, coming at it <laughs> from a non-traditional catcher viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of his stuff has, has been, um, stuff that I've tried to incorporate into my training and finding because it's all about tweaking and, and trying to create create what is going to make them the most comfortable in order to get the desired outcome, which That's is strikes. And if we could steal four pitches a night that that would that are on that borderline, I mean, I think that's a difference from a pitcher going, you know, five plus to getting in the seventh because those are going to be at the, at critical times that you get those pitches. Um, so, so I think that from a receiving standpoint, the other thing is is creating the freedom. I I totally believe in getting the shoulders ahead of the knees in the, so, so if we have to put our, put our body in a position, um, to be strong, 
we also want it to be comfortable. So putting them in that environment, you have to you have to look at their body type and their restrictions. So mm-hmm. so some guys, it's very easy for their shoulders to get put on their knees. Other guys, man, they're they're straight up with their back, right? And so I've started to incorporate different stances, and we're seeing that in the big leagues really now. When you're looking at uh, you know Flowers to uh, Yadier Molina to like all uh, all these guys have different styles of of doing the ultimate goal, which is receiving strikes. Sure. But I think that, I think that you look at a guy like Austin Barnes, who's excellent. He's like a sleight of hand magician with the way that he moves the baseball. Mm-hmm. And he does it from slightly elbow below the wrist where, um, you know, other guys attack it to flowers, tax it differently. I mean, flowers will go drop knee with his left knee. And then the next play on uh, the next pitch he calls, he's going drop knee on his right knee. And, and I really like that. And I have seen, a lot of growth by putting our guys one knee on the ground, nice and relaxed. And this was something because of the way I think Del Piano's uh, voice resonated in my head about telling me I can't drop my knee. <laughs> I think that I probably shied away from, but it was something that it's an area that I've grown in lately. And um, I've seen some great results with our guys in their uh, fundamental understanding. I think the, the last piece on receiving for me that is, is crucial is we have to receive in our secondary. And the most important pitches that we're going to catch all throughout a game are going to be done in our secondary stance. Yep. And so um, by creating by creating the variables within the glove types or within the setups, I think that you have to be sure to incorporate your secondary stances as well as when the kids are catching bullpens that they're doing um, that type of work, that type of variability within their stance so that they can create um, more comfortability for when it becomes game. Mm, okay. A couple points I want to go into on that. Uh, this Again, th- conversations that come through this podcast, conversations that are out on Barnstormers or obviously out through our convention. I think one is it's all about the going to your knees and giving your catchers freedom. Brownie, that's the exact same conversation we were having off air about hitting, right? Like we, we all yes. want to pigeonhole our guys into one look. Uh, especially as hitting coaches, it's got to look like this. These things have to be present. I go back to, to Jerry Weinstein, the Hall of Famer, the legend, 50 years inside the ABCA. There are no always and nevers in baseball. And I love the fact that you're accentuating that even in the style of catching. And I th- I'd have to think your dudes have to resonate with that. They have to appreciate that freedom. Well, I think that they love it because I, I have four different catchers that have four different bat, uh, uh, body types mm-hmm. on my current mm-hmm. roster. And if I was trying to make them all do the same thing, I think that they, you know, certain guys will excel and other guys will struggle. And the problem when player development becomes one size fits all, then I don't think that you're benefiting the masses. That's it. Our ch- our challenge as coaches is to reach everybody, right? We're we're trying to maximize every single person on your roster or, or every single person in your organization. And if you are limiting their growth because of the information and access that they have to it. That's a challenge. I want dynamic performers. So with a hitter, I want to have multiple ways to be able to get to different pitches so that in the course of action, which is not, it's not a vacuum of a batting cage. It's, it's something that is real and there's different anxieties that exist within the performance. And there's also uh, different environmental cues that are going to challenge performance and uh, also, did you get sleep that night? Are we on the road? Or what? You know, what is what is the challenge that that hitter has to has to face that day versus that arm? 
is something that I want them to have multiple ways to do that. Well, as a catcher, I want the same thing. I want to be able to, um, if I have, you know, if, if, if I have an umpire back there that likes the higher pitch, I need to be able to be in a higher setup for him. Right. Mm-hmm. I need, I need to have a different way of getting that pitch mm-hmm. because the best catchers in the league statistically at receiving the low pitch are actually at the bottom end of the top of the top of the zone pitches where the worst receivers in the league are receiving the top of the zone at the highest rate. Now, I don't believe that Yadier Molino or, or, you know, whoever, you know, Austin Barnes can't receive the top of the zone. I believe that they, I believe they have that ability, but their focus is on stealing that strike at the bottom of the zone. Sure. Right. And so, but if you raise their awareness on, Hey, we can get this pitch at the top of the zone better. I think they can improve more so than the limited hands guy or the guy with the stiffness that can't get to the low pitch. The low pitch is where we make our money. It's, Mm -hmm. it's going to be the bread and butter and every coach knows that, but it's how much time are we giving to them? We work machines every single day, every single day. They have a routine that they're going to go through in receiving and we make it fun and we make it um, a challenge. And, but I think as they do the work, that they start creating that variability in their stances because they start realizing, Hey, this is working for me. And when you're competing, like, let's say we're competing on how many pockets we hit out of 10, right? So we have four catchers, you know, the winner doesn't have to pick up balls. Well, when we do, when we do things like that, they're not necessarily going to do what I'm instructing them to do. Like, Hey, this is the way to do it from A to B. This is how you get the result. They're going to do what's going to put them in position to win. And isn't that the game? I mean, the game is about winning. The game is about competing. And and I think that um, that flexibility, that adaptative nature that you can give to a player uh, creates winners. It creates dynamic winning. And I think that's what I think I'm looking for in my players. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I don't want to set the game back 20 years, but I'm going to drop this. So – I think when I was coming up as a player and what I paid attention to, what we taught our catchers, and I think you still have this. It's still out there, still something that's discussed. It's like the for hitting, it's the squish the bug idea, is the catching steering wheel and and really working the steering wheel up and over the zone from the in to the out. And I think more and more, again, you watch professional catchers, and, and Ryan Sienko, the assistant catching coordinator with the Dodgers, spoke at, at UIC last year on Barnstormers and, and really opened my eyes. And I was I was listening for my moment because i got to figure out when to take this video. And I, I kind of am looking over to the right and the left. I'm just making sure the event's rolling smooth. And he says, hey, I love when my guy's chicken wing. And I perk up like, I've never heard a catching coach ever say that before. Now, where's this going? And the drill sequence became back to understanding, to your point, the bottom of the zone is where we really make our money. So if we can live on this parallel line, if we can keep our glove, basically that L shape, right on top of that line of the bottom of the zone, we then have the ability to kind of raise our elbow, get our glove below the strike zone, but then raise it back up and keep it on that parallel line. So it's going to look like a chicken wing, and it's going to look uncomfortable, and it's going to look weird because we try to coach against it. But we have to think a little bit differently on, again, how can we present the presentation of that pitch by not letting the arm, the glove, everything drop below and then try to come back up because every umpire sees that. Correct. And the other thing that I think about that is that we want to be, like, we talk about planes and hitting, right? We talk about being on plane and so we want to be on plane to the flight of the baseball. Mm-hmm. But in catching, we want to be slightly below. 
Mm-hmm. And what, what I what I mean is is that as you're receiving, we don't want to be parallel or above because then we're going to be chasing the ball because mm-hmm. the ball's moving down, especially if you're talking about a breaking ball. Yeah. There's going to be sync to it. There's going or you know overspin, which is going to create depth. And so what we're trying to do is work below it. I, Tony Walters of the Colorado Rockies is mm-hmm. amazing at it. If 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 people see the footage of him, uh, he's he's a again he. He works even below fastballs where he he sits below and then as the pitch is entering into like his receiving zone, he then is working up. Well, I think that one of the best um, teachers for me in catching drills that we've applied have come from watching infield coaches. And so we start taking uh, the similarities to the positions in body movements and and. Uh, what I started doing was trying to say, okay, well, if they're working their hands this way, you know, from the ground up, let's say, and trying to move through the ball and chase the glove, mm-hmm. well, is there something that I can apply to that behind the dish? And that's how I started doing it. I think that the best converted catchers are always the, you know, the failed shortstop, <laughs> right? The dude, the dude who can't run or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever deficiency we yeah, put on him. Yeah. Well, I think that um, probably the best converted catching coaches would come from infield coaches. Wow. So that's just a theory. Well, yeah, we're going to come back to that in a second. Uh, that might lead right into that question. The last one I'll give you is this. You were talking about the turns, and again, I think this comes back to freedom. We're still talking receiving here. Quarter turn. Again, if I were to roll out of bed and not knowing you know very much about catching, being an infield or hitting coach, majority of my coaching career – I would talk about the quarter turns. I've heard a thousand guys say that, and, and we even mentioned it earlier. And it was a great discussion, even this past tour out in San Francisco and L.A., Stevie Rodriguez from UCLA, Todd Coburn, the catching guy, talking about just being cognizant to your – exactly to your point. We want to live below the baseball. We've got to understand that plane. And you see guys that – they still got guys at quarter turn. You still got guys that, that just – just drop the fingers a little bit to come back up to receive. You're also seeing professional baseball guys, so a few in particular, that go down and touch the ground. So their move is a little more drastic, but again, it's emphasizing that I got to get down so I can work back up and get to the knees. Have you seen that as well? Oh, I absolutely have yeah. it. We apply it. Um, yeah. Eddie, Rodriguez, Eddie Rodriguez is a friend of mine who uh, played in the big leagues. Uh, he was a catcher at University of Miami, and uh, he finished up playing with the Yankees last year. And he, to me, is the most brilliant catching mind that I've been around. Mm. And he has, um, because he's very into what I'm into when it comes to the offensive approaches, what we actually do versus what we think we do. Yeah, exactly. And so, so a lot of the challenges that he and I have had together in like trying to figure this thing out on how to develop catchers better has been what's actually happening. And as you study film of major league catchers, the pitchers are at their average fastball is harder than it's ever been in the history of baseball. And yet they have more movements of their pocket away from the ball prior to prior to catch That's it. than ever before. That's a great point. And, and, and so, so I stopped talking about let's have a quarter turn or let's, you know, what to do. What I, what, what I am using is, Hey, let's be athletic. Let's be quick mm-hmm. and let's be efficient with the pocket. So we want to catch the ball. I, I always call it the cross stitch on the glove. Uh, like, so when you look at most catchers, mitts, they have a cross stitch. And I was an all-star guy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I use an all-star mitt. I know that will have the cross stitch because I try to wear that thing out. That's where I would hold my gloves and grip. And um, what, what would happen is 
is the more efficient I am with pocketing the baseball in the, the actual pocket, I'm going to be a better thrower. And the reason is because as I go to transfer, it's going to be in the same spot every time, mm-hmm. right? Makes sense, right? The other thing that happens is you can also create, you know, the feedback for the pitcher where, you know, he might be throwing, you know, 80 poo that day, but he's feeling really good because your gloves popping pretty loud. You know, that's, yep. that's, you know, you try to give that false sense of security. 85 like, oh, to 95. Got, oh, you got really good stuff today. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so, yeah. and, and so, you know, those are the added benefits. Um, but the control factor is something that I think is, is very important for us. So what we do is we train that. And we train it over and over again. And so um, back back when uh, I was training with cousins, we used to have the routine. That's what we called it. And so it was a it was a um, a sequence of different receiving styles of twenty pitches. So it was five, 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 and five. And so the first five were regular. The second five were what we called pancaking, which is extended using the pocket but keeping like a stiff elbow. And so the ball and, and the stiff glove, and so the ball would pop out like you're on purpose. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to put the pocket on the baseball. And then we would go deep, which deep was out of your peripheral. And then the last five, we would go back to regular. And our goal was to always get the most out of 20. You know, So mm-hmm. if you got into that 17 pockets out of 20 range, you were doing very well in that. And you know, for, other, for some guys, the pancaking is what got them right. For me, it was always the deep. I could catch the ball very comfortably deep in my body. And that was always what set me right. And so, you know, but using that tool, we were, our, our goal was one specific thing find the pocket, find the pocket, find yeah. the pocket. Yeah. And so now, every single time I play catch, I mean, I'm counting pockets. It's like it's ingrained in me so mm-hmm. much in the repeated pattern that I want to be able to catch pockets. And so, you know, again, forcing competition. How do you compete? with the person that you're that you're uh, playing catch with well to me it's about pocketing and and, um i think that that focus of what i have to do to get my pocket to the ball takes place of what it is that i'm going to consciously do to put like you know quarter turn i'm going to consciously quarter turn Mm -hmm. well i think that i think that that creates stiffness where if we can create a more relaxed state a more athletic, you would you you, you don't really tell a infielder how to hold his glove necessarily out front, right? You know, yep. saying, "Hey, stiffen your wrist, and we're going to turn your thumb to the left so that you can you can work through it." I think that you know you watch Evan Longoria or, or or some of these guys in the big leagues, like how their glove positioning is prior to the pitch. Nolan Arenado comes to mind where it almost looks like the glove is like falling off of his hand because he's so barely hanging on. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a lot of catchers that catch with that style. Mm -hmm. And, and this is something that I think has been a challenge. I was talking to my former scouting director, Bobby Heck, um, about this, who's a former catcher and, you know, from the great lineage of of catching to leading, which, which is, seems to be a, a good parallel for all of us mm-hmm. is that we were talking about catching and it's like, how do you explain catchers misses like misses in a game are something that interrupt the flow of the game and nobody likes them. Every yeah. time a catcher drops the ball, people will notice it, right? Mm-hmm. Catch 99 out of a hundred. They only remember the one that you dropped. That that's kind of like the old adage that it, it's a thankless job. We know that, right? We know that as catchers, but the guys that are the best at stealing strikes they miss balls because they're living on the peripherals. They're living on the edges. 
And it, sometimes it's okay, especially with nobody on, that you can live on the edges. And Yasmani Grandal was that for me. When when catcher data started coming out, Grandal was in like top of the league and is receiving. But when I scouted him, like as a scout for the Astros, when he was at the University of Miami, I, I didn't rate him as such a high receiver because I didn't like he had a lot of misses. He missed balls on the edges. I thought that, um, you know, his I thought that his movement patterns could be better, you know. And so in my mind, it wasn't. But then when you start seeing the data, he's ranking really high in comparison to the best of the best. And so, again, we're challenged to think differently and sometimes realizing that misses are going to be okay is a concept that I, it's going to, you're going to have to explain it to your pitching coach and your pitchers, yeah. you know, that, Hey, this is, this is, this is for the benefit of us all. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's just, uh, it's kind of like the new age thinking. That's outstanding. Going to throwing. I think the, the, the throwing side of it, again, I, people have a very good framework, but these movement patterns that are inside of throwing, there's still room for debate inside of it. Where do you sit on all that? Oh man, I, I think that um, I was programmed to be so pattern based. Yes. Of my right foot step to chin, my left left of center, and that's how I was directional to make my throws. Um, again, go back to cousins and how we would do it. I think that what um, what helped me more as a thrower than anything else that we ever did was every single day I would show up to the yard and cousins. I was fortunate enough. Cause was my manager three different times uh, in my career, in my five-year career, right? Yeah. So, like, that was, uh, again, like, a huge part of my development was that he and I were together, and we were, I was his guinea pig. Mm-hmm. And so we we would get in the cage. This is before anybody was in the ballpark, you know, just shorts, kind of like one of those, like, you know, yawn-type stretches. And he'd start, we'd play catch for about two minutes, and then we'd just start throwing balls into the back of the net. And so he'd feed me a bucket, and I'd repeat, repeat, repeat. And, you know, right foot, step to chin, left, left, center, and spin the baseball to the back. And I think the spinning was the thing that I learned the most. It, like, spinning is something, it's like an art form. It's a, it's a quarterback who has feel. Well, um, you know, shortstops so often can do that. You know, like they could multiple arm slots to get the ball across the diamond. Well, I think at catchers, we tried to make, as a kid, I was made so rigid, like get your hand to the ear and, you know, the, yeah. you want the ball facing the yeah. back chain link and all these stuff. Well, you start looking at arm patterns, that stuff doesn't really happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I've done in, in our development of throwing is I take the same uh, type of drill work that Cuz had created with um, with with me back in the day of of I love the batting cage as like our little bullpen area for catchers. Right. And so we throw balls at about 60 feet into the back net and we have a spot that we're trying to aim for that is going to be our reference point to my ability to spin the baseball and put it on the bag at second base. And, and so as I do that, as I throw those balls over and over, um, I begin, now we're in the field process, right? And so like spatial awareness and all that stuff matters. Um, the other thing that I try to tell them is I want early movements. And so when you watch these videos of, you know, the catching guy does great work as far as putting, posting things. But when you watch these movement patterns, they're catching baseballs much more like a shortstop turning two. Yeah. Than, than what was traditionally thought that catchers do. That's a great parallel. 
And so what I try to do is put them in those positions more often than not. How do we create the early movement patterns? You know, at, at 60 feet, six inches and the amount of rep that you've had as a catcher, your identification of the pitch being a, a block versus a catchable ball mm-hmm. is very early. It's like you have early recognition of that, right? And so that's what allows them to start the movement pattern to get their body in position. Um, so we started doing drills. We started with the football and started using um, some creative ways to get them uh, to catch the ball, as I say, like a tight end going over the middle uh, I, I say tight end because our guys don't look like, uh, you know, slot receivers. <laughs> slot receivers. Yeah. 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 So, so we're, we're more tight end style, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, what I do is I, I try to get them, I try to get them positioned where, um, we're catching the ball. We're getting more comfortable catching the ball on our side, uh, where I used to be catch transfer out front. Now I'm allowing them to transfer it more in the middle of their body, like deeper on their turn. And, and I, I say it all the time is, is that, I think that the guys that I'm training are more athletic than I was. So maybe for me, I needed that patterning to make me consistent. And, I, and that's what I was. I was like a dude who would live at the 2-0 on the bag. That's where I lived. And I threw a lot of guys out that way. Some of these guys that I get have, like Jake Anchia, big-time arm strength. I mean, he's got like – if you, if you don't like him, he's got a 60 arm, you know, <laughs> from behind the dish. Sure. And so And so – what what happens with a guy like that is they're so used to relying on the arm that their foot patterning isn't as important to them. So how do we create that correlation? Well, I think it's by emphasizing the feet. You know, other guys they need to work on their spin, and so how do we do that? We we focus that individual training on spin, uh, but all these drills can incorporate both. Like your drill sets can incorporate both patterns, just for that individual putting the focus on what he needs to do to feel it or. You know, some guys are. are um, I can think. I'm thinking of one in particular that I have on my roster right now. Is that he's more um, of a of a uh, blunt like thrower. You know, like yeah. it's get the ball and it's it's chucked right. And mm-hmm. he's got a cannon. He's got an unbelievable release. He's got all these things. But what's important about throwing guys out is is going to be accuracy. And there's. Um, you know, there's data that shows that a tag, uh, you know, a ball received at the height of, you know, your shortstop's reach is going to add two tenths of a second to the tag play. Well, that one eight now becomes a two oh. And obviously that's the difference between safe and out. And, and so how do we create, how do we create better thoughts within their mindset that they're going to be able to apply that's going to get them better while we're working as a macro group? That's the hardest challenge we have. If we were sitting in, if we're sitting in a um, a cage or a lab, and we're working one on one with a catcher, you can individualize the training. But in a team setting, you have a multiple you have multiple catchers. How do you how do you individualize it in the fifteen minutes that you might have set for indies? And that's saying you have a catching individual on that day because most of the time, what happens? Oh, I. <laughs> You know, pitcher coach it. trying, to, yeah, pitcher <laughs> coach trying to get to them, you know, like so that they can throw the bullpens because yeah. pitchers are always going to take the priority. And and so how do you how do you create these how do you create these opportunities when your practice matters? Um, are catchers going to get the machines out and do their receiving on their own? Do you have a setup that you even have a machine? Those are the challenges. And then um, I think the last like really like big obstacle that most programs face is do they have a catching coach? 
And do they have somebody with expertise that's comfortable with teaching that? And, and I go back to Tanner uh, and the presentation that he had at the ABCA. I think that Tanner's Tanner Swanson's approach to catching was something, yes, like when you're watching that video and he's got like six hack attack machines like side by side, like I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like, you know, like it's the Taj Mahal, right? Yeah, you're like, how yeah. do we get that? But But you can take all the different variabilities and stuff that he that he um, shown to the to the masses and say this is what we're going to do at our practice to implement you know even if it's a coach throwing the ball at least that you're creating different thought patterns and how they're executing the drill the machine it's a luxury you know and and it's a great luxury if you could have it um, one of the emphasis that we do with the machine and this is also like where I've grown is uh, I believe that receiving the curveball is much more vital than receiving the fastball. I would have said in my early years of coaching catching, we probably did 95% fastball training and 5% breaking ball training. Now, um, I think we're doing 99% breaking ball training because I think that, I think that catching the fastball is, is, a byproduct of catching the breaking ball because again, we we're emphasizing working underneath the ball and because we're using that horizontal forearm. And so, so by understanding that pattern, I think it's easier when you move to the fastball. And so as I've seen our guys put, you know, five weeks of individuals or four plus weeks of individuals, um, catching training in the application now, like when it's, when it's bullpen time, when I put lay eyes on them, I can see their patterning getting better, or I can see still see some guys getting into like more of a choke reception to the ball on the left, mm-hmm. which I want them to be sink the elbow, thumb down. And uh, there's a lot of trust involved, and and so you know it's it's something that I mean I got thumbed before I got thumbed in spring training one year, and for six months. It felt like every single ball I caught, like weighed, uh, you know, every pounds. one of them. <laughs> uh, and so, and so, you know, you're you're trying to build trust, but getting them to understand why and the benefits, and if they can yeah. master the art of it. But how do you do it where it's low risk to injury? And and we actually found um, by using uh, different training methods, like soft balls and, and uh, like softer baseballs or you know those things it builds the trust in the player and they can still do it at a high rate of speed you mentioned routines and i want you to open that up i think every listener would be upset if we ended without breaking that down like the routines that those guys have are there are certain drills you talked about using some different machines you have a a thing they do every day that gets them prepped ready to rock and roll open that up yeah i think that first is you got to start with your hips right because if we don't get their hips right prior to squatting uh i think that you're going to be in in um, uh, like a deficit right from the start. So what we try to do is we try to create what we call catcher stretches prior to, and then we have a blocking routine, which we do the three ball drill uh, where you put the ball in sort of a triangle and we want them to block to the center, block to the right, block to the left, but do it with rhythm. Do it. We're not in an urgency. We're not trying to like, you know, be gangbusters and, and beat yeah. it. Be, you know, I want them, I want them to do it with a pattern um, involved. And so now by the time they ever get into whatever catching duty they have, if like, let's say they're going straight into bullpens, they've already had 15 blocks on the day. Cause they've done five to the center, five to the right and five mm-hmm. to the left. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing of it is 
catching drills, even if you don't have time in practice, all of them can be applicable when they're playing in their throwing program, when they're playing catch. Sure. And so, and so making sure that the transfer in the baseball, um, making sure that they're creating directional movement patterns that are, that are athletic when they're throwing the baseball rather than, you know, those, those sloppy lines that we see when a catcher takes it out of his glove and he, he long arms it and he's talking to the dude next to him. We don't, I try to prevent that. I want them to talk. I want them to enjoy themselves out there, but get the work done. As long as there's a focus on, on what our intent is with every throw, we have an opportunity to get better. And And so, and so I think that, um, creating that routine so that it starts there then they get into their blocking drills and then if we have time to get on the machine prior to uh hopefully prior to the bullpen now you're creating high rate high rate functional movement patterns um you know rates of speed matter cutting down the distance and then you know using variables as to um uh even even backing them up into a position like so so that that same pitch that we're catching now is lower in the zone or moving them forward so that it's higher in the zone, but having them do it athletically, I think is very important. We got into like some, you know, when we're having a lot of fun or, or, you know, I call it fun because I'm the one feeding the machine. But when we're, when we're, when we're doing um, different challenges, you know, putting them up in a position, a push-up position, and then they got to jump into a, a, uh, a stance, whichever stance they choose, but jump up into stance to be able to receive the baseball. But all, all again, I, I really think that stems from what I saw from Tanner, but it's creating different athletic movements within the context of our game. And I think so long our training was rigid and non-athletic that now you're looking at the new wave of coaching and the new philosophies that we are seeing um, coming from, from some outside-of-the-box thinkers is that we can we can train our athletes to be better athletes, mm-hmm. but football's been doing this a heck of a lot longer than we have, and and Olympic sports have been doing this a heck of a lot longer. I mean, forever we would stay away from Olympic lifts. Oh, it seems like in our sport, and now understanding the value of you know the hip hinge and, and being able to um, deadlift and 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 you know clean and drive the, drive the bar with speed because we understand that lifting a lot of weight is important, but how fast you lift it is even more important. Um, and so, and so that's what I want the dynamic part of our catching routine to be is that, is that we're moving better and more agile. I don't need, I don't want them to be necessarily like strength is relative. I want them to have arm strength, but I want them to have quickness. So, so if we're constantly doing static movement patterns, I think that you're creating strength. I think that if you're you're creating um, you know plyometric type movement patterns, I think that you're creating speed. And so, what are we asking him to do? Well, if he's a two zero thrower, we want him to be a one nine because you know he's got to get a college scholarship. He's got to go to the ACC. He's got to go to the ACC. Okay, perfect. Well, how do we do that? Yeah. Well, like just oh, keep throwing. <laughs> you know, like yeah. no, that doesn't work. <laughs> sure. Like we we can't we can't be static with it. Like I think that. You can get better. You can get better at fielding a thousand ground balls. Like even if you're dysfunctional in your move patterns, you can field a thousand ground balls and you can get better. Yep. But what if you're empowered with information? And so I think my goal is to empower our athletes, like empower them with information and then they can apply it so that it works for them. 
And then when you're in the weight room and you see them utilizing strength and conditioning to empower them to be better on the field, I think that's when it really becomes like full circle. It's like the athlete is getting that holistic approach that I feel was vacant in a lot of my development. Oh, that's off the charts right there. That's a great dom. You know, we talked about earlier, you mentioned maybe it's the, it's the, uh, the infield coach that has to transition to being a catching coach. But I think we see that a lot, especially if we have listeners that are in youth baseball, you're not always going to find that, that specific catching guy or on your high school staff and you're trying to, you know, find all the different fundamentals and, and have all those positional players covered. You don't always have that. You have the guy that played infield that now has to become the outfield coach. But man, it's more often than not one of the most, you know, sought after positions, especially in the upper levels of college baseball, is finding that catching coach, developing behind the plate, especially as we know how much that leads to success. So if those dudes are paying attention, Brownie, how would you uh, in terms of really understanding the position, learning more, approaching their guys, like, look, I played infield in college. So, look, I'm not coming from a place of I've got, you know, 400 games under my belt. How can they approach their guys with confidence and be ready, but also keep growing and learning? Well, I think that I think that it starts there with confidence with themselves, mm-hmm. confidence that they're teaching the right thing. I think if somebody asked me to go be an infield coach today, I'd be less confident than I would be once I start preparing. I think mm-hmm. I understand infield patterning. I think that I, I have a very novice entry level approach to it. I probably could coach eight year olds better than I could coach college <laughs> kids right now. Mm-hmm. But I think that I can learn it because I think if you can coach, you can coach. Yep. I don't think it matters what it is. I think that if if you can, it, you know, Tim Corbin, who I have the utmost respect for, and I've developed a great relationship over um, uh, a, a similar events of, of loss of players. We, I lost a player and he, and Tim lost a player a couple years ago. And, um, I think that, I think that if you put him in charge of a fortune 500 company, I think that he'd have a way to find success because he build culture and, and mm-hmm. power people. And I think that that's the approach that we should have. If, if we believe in our own ability to coach or get more out of people that we can develop, we can grow in that. So a, lot, a lot of us, you know, old dogs, te- you know, teach old dog new parents. Well, I think that it's just applying the same type of of drill work that you've been doing prior to. You just need to find somebody that helps empower you. Go collaborate. Go go seek out information, and don't be afraid to uh, to use the resources that we have at, at like at our fingertips, literally in our pockets. That we can go and, and follow people on Twitter and Instagram and say, hey, man, like, like I might not agree with what that person's saying at all, but they're providing content yeah. that you can watch and formulate your own opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I think is where, where when you're in those positions of unfamiliarity, that your own creativity will end up leading you down the road faster than just somebody going, hey, here's my manual. Go teach it. Yeah. You know, like you yeah. need that trial and error and, and it's not, it's not much different than a player's development where, you know, he's going to struggle before he succeeds. It's very few players just get it automatically. We teach a complex, um, sort of complex offensive approach. You know, I, I don't think it's complex, but it looks complex to the outside world, I guess. And when we teach it, it, it some players, they adapt quickly. Some players, it takes a long time. And the, the trick is, is that you keep them inundated and keep trying to find new ways to reach them. 
well, um, you know, how devoted a coach is to getting the information to the player to benefit him is going to be probably indicative of what the outcome is of him learning the new position. I think, yeah. I think it's intent. I, I think that if your goal is to impact the individuals that you're coaching, then, and that's to me like the purest form of your intent as a coach yep. is that you're going to be able to find ways there. There are so many great people out there that are willing to share information. Um, and I think that we have to be humble and put, check the ego from, you know, cause uh, the ego can get in the way of so many, so many of your opportunities to learn and grow. That's it. <laughs> um, this is a unique question. I got two more for you. When you think about your background as a, as a pro scout and obviously your background now in coaching, when you're looking at a catcher and those might be two different lenses, but in essence you could, you could funnel them into the same lens, but when you're looking at a catcher and this is for high school coaches. And again, if we're grooming these guys, uh, to be ready for college baseball and to be ready, hopefully one day to have an opportunity to develop into professional catcher. What's it look like in the evaluation process? What's it look like in the recruitment process for you? I think that the first thing I always start with is their athleticism and their hips. Okay. Uh, if, if they're restricted in their hips, they are going to have trouble over time consistently getting into the catching position. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, like, so if, if they tie, if they fatigue, and their hips get stiffer, well, that's probably like the late innings of the game, right? And so when they're receiving, you know, maybe you're bringing in your closer and he's got a nasty slider. Well, that's not a great recipe for success. So I want athleticism in the hips. And athleticism in the hips can come in all shapes and sizes. You don't have to be the fittest human being in the world to be have athleticism in the hips. And so how I judge that is how they sit back there. Can they, stay, can they remain low? And then I think in evaluating catchers, and this is – this was a Bobby Heck teach to me, and ever since um, he taught me this, I, I can't get it out of my head. Is you can go watch a catcher on Friday night, and he looks great, right? They're gangbusters. <laughs> well, go catch go catch that game on Sunday and see what he looks like after he's caught three back to back. Yeah. You know, like that's that's something that is really indicative of, of how healthy the catcher is to catch over the long term. Obviously, in the professional baseball, you're talking about 140 games. You need them to catch probably 100, 110 in that time, you know, in the minor leagues, um, if he's going to be an everyday catcher. Uh, I think in the high school level, you, you hope that you, you, you're blessed, right, if you have one catcher on, on your team like in your school. <laughs> and then, you know, if you have two, you got a plethora. Well, I think that um, identifying the, the, the athletic catcher who's going to help you win is so important. Like it's thro throwing out the bat and the statistics. I mean, the Red Sox right now, uh, you know, best record they've ever had in their history. And, you know, you look at their catchers, uh, you know, they're, they're hitting probably a combined 200 right now. Yeah. And the reality is though, they win with them and they're leaders and, and they, they uh, you know, Christian Vasquez is, is, is stealing strikes at a high rate. We don't they're, they're, they're more value to winning than just their offensive input, you know? So I think that that's what you want to evaluate. How, how do they lead? Do, do they inspire the people around them? Do they make them better? And, you know, I said that about Jake and Chia's development where Jake had the qualities of being a leader, but it needed to be developed. Michael Hernandez came in with those, with those leadership qualities. And although they continue to develop, 
they were innate in him from the time he was a freshman. And so Jake really embodied that as a junior. Um, And I think that, I think that um, exploring opportunities to develop those type of things within once you identify this is the athletic fit and then and then really working on developing leadership qualities within the individuals in your program, but especially behind the plate. Like we have a leadership academy and I've, I've, I've spoken about that like in multiple platforms. Um, I think it's the smartest thing I've ever done uh, as a coach uh, was implementing this five years ago. And this year we have 14 of our 41 kids in our program that are in the leadership Academy. And, uh, the one thing that I, uh, you know, off the record mandate is that it, the, all the catchers are always in it, you know, like, because <laughs> sure. I just think that I think it's just so important no for their, for their development. Mm-hmm. And, um, the catching position is going to get you through the hardest time of your season. Mm-hmm. And so if you have individuals that people believe in, they're going to carry you through. If you have individuals that are selfish or, or self-serving or uh, inadequate, I think that your 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 season will follow suit of that as well. Okay, man. Last question I got for you, and again, we talk about emptying our pockets out. And I just want you to think about two parts here. Advice for catching coaches, advice that are out there, things you've learned. I love the lessons learned. Let me be your experience type advice. And then for coaches in general, dude, you've got so much to offer, Brownie, on, on a lot of fronts, and you've, and you've done that throughout this show. What would you offer catching coaches? What would you just offer coaches in general? Listen to this. Well, I would say read. I think that the more that you can read and, and like real reading, like I, I find myself in that trend where I only read 140 characters sometimes. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I want to get out of that trend. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to make sure that I set some time for me to do some thinking about what I'm implementing that day within our coaching um with it, with you know, within the practice plan, mm-hmm. um, I think I think that just being focused, it will allow the people around you to be more focused. Um, I, I I have a saying that like within our program is that um, my passion and my love for for the Nova Southeastern University baseball program um, will probably be never be matched by anybody within the program naturally. But I'm challenging them to rise up. I'm challenging them to commit to loving this place so that we leave the jersey in a better place. And then when we go on, uh, it's somewhere you're going to be proud of and you're going to have a degree and you're going to have all these things. You're going to get so much from this university if you devote yourself to being like, like to succumbing to hey, there's this great entity that I'm a part of and I want to make it better and I want to leave it. That's my legacy. So I think as coaches, our challenge is how do we leave a legacy? How do we create um, the the impact that when you leave a place, that that place knows that you were there? And sometimes that's through you know fundraising and, and building and sometimes that's just through the impact that you had on the individuals that they're never going to be the same. And you know, that's what I like to think about, like my assistant coaches, especially when we've, you know, that, that I'm going to, I'm never going to be the same because I was impacted by the time that we spent on the field, you know, on the grind together, um, developing people and, and developing each other. And so I think that the give back, uh, to the game is so important. Um, and I think it just rewards you. I've been rewarded so much just recently, uh, even just today, three of our former players stopped by that are all in professional baseball and that reward is so big. But, um, you know, I talked about the leadership uh, Academy. One of the original 
guinea pigs, if you will, within the um, within the leadership academy, reached out to me and asked if he could be a guest speaker. And so, to me, that's like it all coming full circle, right? Sure. And so, so, so my my message is more about appreciate appreciate what we are doing and what we have. I think um, so many times we don't stop just to enjoy where you are. Be excellent where you are. Make the program or the you know the uh, organization that you're in the best that you can do it, uh, the best that it can be in the things that you can control. There are things that title allow you to control that others don't. So if you're the volunteer, spend the time learning from everyone that's around you. You know, like your goal is to eventually be in that top seat. Okay, there's no that's not being a climber. That's being a visionary like hey you have a plan for your future so why not spend that time learning from a recruiter who has the you know the the wherewithal or the experience or the again the the guy that's excellent at office work the non-fun stuff right mm-hmm. so you know the field's 30 percent of it i mean that's what i've come to think you know believe and so you know if you, i think that if you can separate yourself in that 70 percent that's going to end up being what carries you from job to job. If you're better at the 30%, but you stink at the 70%, I think that most of most of the hiring coaches are going to go in a different direction because they're they're not really looking like your your difference making on the field, they can probably find something similar to that versus all the stuff that they're going to have to make up. So I think that's I think that's something that um I didn't have a lot of tutelage from from the office stuff, and it was a lot of learn on the fly for me because I didn't have much coaching experience when I got the job at Nova Southeastern. I had only coached one year at a junior college before I got the scouting gig with the Astros. But when I was with the Astros, I learned from a grassroots level as to the game, and I had great teachers. And you know, Bobby Heck is a huge influence in my life. Still have a relationship with David Post, who's Nash, who's uh, was the national cross checker, who's now the assistant GM. Uh, with the uh, Padres and I think that when I was with those guys I tried to learn and it was like in this game and sport that you've known your whole life you're just learning at a totally different rate and how to break players down and and do that well if if that momentum that I had back then I mean I haven't been in scouting it's crazy to think but now nine years but I still think I'm scouting every single day as I'm watching baseball like every time I'm watching baseball I'm scouting I don't I don't see the game the same way. And so I'm trying to continue to sharpen that ax, even though I'm in a different role. So I grow yourself in this game and that's the best thing. And so I probably didn't answer your question at all, but, uh, <laughs> but that's where, my, that's where my mind went, you know, and I think, awesome. uh, you know, for, for catching coaches is just uh, be experimental, like, like try, try to be non-traditional and try to learn um, a, a better way. Most catching coaches, even the catchers that caught, can't uh, like necessarily are going to be able to translate it because yeah. the greatest coaches, the greatest teachers in life, are going to be the greatest translators. So, mm-hmm. it, my job is to interpret what what is happening and then to be able to disseminate it down and create it where it's palatable, so that player in his learning style can learn. And that's the role. That's to me the role of coaching. 11.40 p.m. on a Monday night, and there's no place I'd rather be, Brownie, than rapping with you, brother. Thanks for jumping on the call again. Second time, crushed. And uh, I think, again, a great conversation about catching. A lot of perspective 
jumping through the call. So again, we wish you guys the best of luck, man. Keep the sharks rolling, and we look forward to hope seeing you back in Cary in the spring. And uh, best of luck, man. We'll see you in Dallas. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Sheets. I appreciate you. Thanks so much for dialing into our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast and connecting with these great coaches. If you're interested in more of these shows, check us out on iTunes, hit subscribe and dive right in, or head over to abca.org slash podcast and scroll through all of our episodes. A huge thanks again to the great folks over at AstroTurf for sponsoring this podcast. If you're looking at doing any upgrades at your facility, head over to astroturf.com. That's astroturf.com and see why they've been ahead of the curve for almost 50 years. Now here at the American Baseball Coaches Association, we're here to serve coaches around the world. So let us know how we can help. Head over to our website, abca.org for more information. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at ABCA1945. You can find us on Facebook as well. And feel free to reach out to me directly at any time on Twitter at CoachSheets3 or by email Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-S, at abca.org. We'd love to hear from our loyal members and continue to find ways to keep growing the game together. As always, coaches, thank you for listening in and staying dialed into our podcast. Until next week, we ask you keep growing, you keep developing, you keep challenging yourself inside this game. We wish you and your club the very best, and thank you for what you're doing for the game of baseball. 